Awesome. Hey, welcome to part three of this series that we call Jesus Hates. And if you're a guest with us, maybe for the first time and you're thinking, that is a provocative sermon series title. That's the point. It really is. Um, Because most of the time we grow up, kind of hear about Jesus as like this meek and mild, gentle Jesus. And this is, this series is sort of our counterbalance to all of that and saying, yes, he was. We're not denying that. But at the same time, Jesus was impassioned. At the same time, Jesus is spirited. At the same time, Jesus, Jesus was so riled up about some things that he just wanted us to know about the dangers of a few things. So we know that Jesus was the Savior who was meek and mild and gentle. We know that Jesus was the kind of guy that fell asleep in a boat during a storm. We know that Jesus was the guy who stretched out his arms and said, let the little children come to me, no doubt with little butterflies landing on them and sparrows making nests in his long flowing locks. That's Jesus. But also Jesus is the guy that kicked over the temple, or the, t- the tables in the temple. But also Jesus is the guy that said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Also Jesus is the, is the guy who was so riled up and who was so passionate that he brought sin and death down into the grave to leave it there so that he could rise to new life. And he had a few things that he identified that separate us from God And he said, we hate those things. And Jesus hates those things. Part one, Jesus hates injustice. Part two, Jesus hates this empty or hollow worship, empty religion. Jesus hates, this morning in part three, pride. So there's a good kind of pride that we're not talking about today. There's a good kind of pride that says that I found out last night, true story, that my kindergartner can write out his whole name, full name, first, middle, and last name all by himself. And I'm so proud that I wanted to share it with a few hundred of my closest friends. I'm proud. And that's a good kind of proud. I'm proud of you as a church. Because every time I ask somebody around here, how did you hear about Encounter? And it's like, uh, so-and-so invited me. And I love that. I'm proud that this is that kind of church, that, that you can identify people who may be far from God, but near to you. And you're like, hey, come on and worship with me this week. And come check it out. Even if you're not sure about this stuff, even if you don't believe this stuff, I think that you would like it anyway. I'm proud of you as a church. But then there's this other kind of pride. And that's what we're talking about today. It's the kind of pride that promises to build us up but actually tears us down. It's the kind of pride that promises to to make us bigger and better, but it actually makes us smaller and meaner and even kind of petty. If I'm honest with you, I can see the kind of pride exhibited in my life where I am proud because I have this certain like streak of, of cheapness to me. And I can identify a few things that I'm saying. Like, I can't even believe it looking back now about how inordinately proud I am of some of those things. I remember in a college student, I shared a house with six other guys. There were seven of us in this old house. And we thought it would be a great idea to keep the thermostat at 57 degrees all winter long. Why? I have no idea. We split the bill seven ways. Three degrees would not have made much of a difference, but that was like the pride that I had to say, listen, we're going to keep it on. And now as a dad, it's like, hey, don't you touch that thermostat. I got that. Right? I remember in 2006, it was still in college living with some friends that I gave up butter because it's like unnecessary purchase and I could save a dollar or two that entire year, right? And I get like proud of how cheap I am. And some of you are going like, yeah, that makes sense. Like looking around here, I get that. I get that. We've got a... Space, uh, like, a, like a face for radio and a space that lends itself to darkness. <laughs> like that. 
that's encounter. That, that's why we keep the lights low. Uh, no, like, I, I have this, like, streak to me. And I'll tell you, one time, like, it really came out. I remember my wife and I were dating. We just started dating, and she bought these flip-flops that were ridiculously expensive, and I just made so much. I relentlessly made fun of her. I got permission to share this story, don't worry. But like, I just like, how could you spend? It was like $50 on flip-flops. I'm like, how could you spend? It's like, well, they have a Vibram sole and it's like custom molded to my foot. And I was like, it's flip-flops for $50. Right? just made fun of her. I'm like, you can go to Old Navy, $4. You can get like a board with a plastic strap over. It's fine. Some mild back pain involved. Some third degree burns on the top of your foot because I have like delicate top of toes from these Michigan winters. But you'll be fine. That was a little while ago now. Every year, part of our pre-vacation ritual is like going to Old Navy to get me a new pair of flip-flops because in anger I had thrown out last year's. And it's like, that's fine, they're $4, and I'll just go, I'll get a new pair, and I'll go through the whole back pain, third-degree burn cycle over again. And this is what my wife does. This is my true story. As we're getting ready for vacation this year, and she's like, I'm putting my flip-flops in the suitcase, and she's putting hers in the same pair of shoot flip-flops that she got back in college. And she just humbly looks over and asks me, and she goes, how many pair of flip-flops do you think you've bought over the last four years of dating followed by 13 years of marriage? <laughs> and I'm not too proud to admit <laughs> that after some mild back trauma and third-degree burns on my foot, I was wrong about that. <laughs> 17 years in the running, and I can finally admit she may have had a point on that. Pride, that's the kind of pride we're talking about this morning. We're talking about the kind of pride that keeps you from, the kind of pride that keeps you from initiating an apology even though you know you're probably somewhat at fault. Even if it's just 5% at fault, it's like the pride inside of all of us that just keeps us from walking over and saying, I'm sorry. It's the kind of, of pride that keeps us from admitting that we need help with something because we're not capable of doing it on our own and it just pains us to do that and so we don't. It's the kind of pride that, that keeps us from uh, apologizing or keeps us from asking for help, the kind of pride that keeps us from learning something new because we, we just know everything already. It's the kind of pride that keeps us from, and it's also the kind of pride that causes us to. The kind of pride that, that causes us to cheat in order to like get ahead, in order to like win that game of Uno with our four-year-old one more time, because it's like we have to win. That kind of pride. It's the kind of pride that keeps us from and causes us to. It causes, keeps us from liking other people's Instagram posts, because we don't want to give her the satisfaction. Am I on to anything, right? The kind of pride that keeps us from and causes us to do all kinds of harmful and even self-destructive behaviors. It's that kind of pride that promises to build us up, but it actually takes us down. And Jesus this morning, I think, wants to rescue us from that. And he certainly wanted to rescue the people then. So we're going to go to a story this morning. We're going to hear how Jesus rescues us from a pride like that. If you want to flip to it, you can find it in Luke chapter 18. You Luke chapter 18, there's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. The words are also going to be on the screen behind me. You can follow along that way, that way. If you don't have a Bible at home or if you like ours better, go ahead and take this one with you. We love giving those away. But Luke chapter 18, and it starts off this way in, in verse 9. 
And it says, uh, to some who are, and I love this, confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Okay, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Is a two guys, Pharisee and tax collectors, more on them in just a minute, but we've got to see they're going up to the temple. Remember, Jerusalem, elevation-wise, is the highest place around at 3,3200 feet or so above sea level, and a place that's notorious for being below. The temple is the highest place in the highest city. Jerusalem was the holiest city. The temple is the holiest place in the holy city. So they always go, they go up to the temple. They go down home later, but now they're going up to the temple to worship. We're going to find out a little later in the story that they offered these individual prayers. And that's important because it shows us why they were in the temple in the first place. They went up to the temple uh, to offer these individual prayers during a sacrifice of atonement. This happened twice a day at dawn and at 3 p.m. You thought 9.15 was an early time to go to worship. Try dawn or the 3 p.m. service. It's up to you. (laughs) They would go up to the temple, and what would happen, this is important for for the conclusion of the story, what would happen is that a priest would come out and maybe offer some words or they'd all pray together like we do with the Lord's Prayer. And then the priest would, would, would give the cue to blast the silver trumpets, to clash the cymbals together, to make all this ruckus, all this noise, to signal the beginning of the individual prayer time when everybody would, would pray to God themselves. Everybody gathered in the courts, as these two guys are, but also everybody who can hear these things all throughout the whole city of Jerusalem. Everybody who hears that is like, okay, dawn, or it's at dawn, and it's at three, it's prayer time. And so, and so they would break out, and they would pray too. Some people, observant, still do this even, even today. But at dawn, at three, they would offer these individual prayers, okay? they do that in the courtyard, and then the priest would, be, would take the lamb or the sacrifice, go inside, and then come outside a little while later, declare that God had probably accepted the sacrifice of atonement. The sins are forgiven. They'd offer up this smoke up to the sky, and everybody praying in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas would see the smoke going up. They'd know prayer time is over. It's time to get back to work. That's the sacrifice. That's the the worship experience that we're talking about in this story. Now, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector happened to both be at the temple during this time. And what we're going to read is what we're going to drop in on their individual prayers. Now, the Pharisees were the good guys in the story. Now, we've got to be clear about that because today, if you've read this story before, you might know that the Pharisees are often the bad guys in the story. But the bad guy in this story at the time that Jesus tells it is the tax collector. Tax collector, there's no real modern day equivalent to what this thing is. The tax collector is like, uh, uh, he's a state-sponsored extortionist. I mean, he's shaking people down on behalf of this occupying nation, Rome, over Jerusalem. They do not like that he sold them out to the occupying nation, the Romans. And they're shaking everybody down. Every bit of wealth that this guy has was generated on the backs of collecting extra taxes of the people. They didn't like that. The closest thing that we have today of a tax collector back then would be something like a neighborhood drug lord who like offers protection to the neighborhood people. But protection from what? Uh, from me. <laughs> if you don't pay me, then I'll come after you. Like that's the level of, of despise that the people had towards tax collectors, the, the, the bad guys in the story. The other thing that we got to know is that whenever they would pray these individual prayers, they were instructed to pray according to like these three principles. They'd pray in order. It went confession, 
It went thanksgiving and then supplication. Those are weird words. So we're going to start off, I'm sorry about, thank you for, and please help with. If you're a brand new Christian or if you're just kind of checking this thing out and somebody's like, hey, you know, maybe pray once in a while. And you're like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea that Christians do. I just don't know how. And they're like, well, it's easy. Praying is just talking to God. And you're like, yeah, but like, if he talks back, I will think I lost my mind. So like that's easier said than done. And you're wondering how to start praying. I, I would offer that. That's a great place to start. I'm sorry about, thank you for, please help with. This three-step process. That's the expected prayer. I just think that's helpful information to know as we go in to the two individual prayers offered up first by the Pharisee, by the religious good guy in this story, verse 11. The Pharisee, remember, he stands by himself in isolation and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not like robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector, savage, right? I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. He starts off, I thank you that I'm not like other people. What did he forget? Not a rhetorical question, three-step process. What was the first one? I'm sorry. I'm sorry about. He completely skips over this confession section. He's not sorry about anything. He goes right into the thanksgiving. Right into the thanksgiving. And what's he thankful for? I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm not like this guy over here. Like, yes, maybe. That's a place to start. Okay. Please help with. I don't need help with. I'm good. I don't need help. God, I don't need any help with righteousness. I'm all set. God, help? Come on here. What do you mean? Help. I already fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. One thing that I'm proud of, I'm proud of you're a church that likes to drill down on some of these things in Scripture. I hear about it and you offer these comments to me back. And so I know that you like to know a little bit more about the significance of these things. When he says, I fast, tw I fast twice a week, we know he's going above and beyond the expected norm. Typically, they have three holy days throughout the, throughout the year, these holy celebrations. They would fast two days ahead, two days after each of these celebrations. For 12 days total, this guy fasts not just during those times, but twice a week, 110 days out of the year. I'm going way above and beyond is what he's saying. Please help. Come on. I'm crushing it over here. <laughs> and I give a tenth of all I get. Typically, they're supposed to tithe. Tenth is the same word. And, and just the stuff that grew up in the ground, the stuff that the ground, the earth produced. He says, no, 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 everything that I get, whether it grows in the ground, whether somebody gives it to me, wh whether I'm borrowing it, everything that comes under my possession or stewardship, I am going to tenth on, I am going to tithe on. I am crushing the spiritual game. I don't need any help from anybody. And this is like he's, he's tilting his hand and he's showing us this kind of arrogant pride at work in his heart. The pride that is so full of self-sufficiency, self-importance, and self-exaltation. In other words, he's, he's full of, I've got this, I'm valuable, and I'm better than. Let me ask, do you ever, you ever like go to maybe it's like a dinner party or having drinks with like a group of people or something like that that you don't know very well, and so you're just kind of like getting to know people. 
Um, by the way, a little life hack, if you want to just make a good impression, uh, just ask a lot of questions, right? Ask them where they're from, ask them what they do, ask them about their family. Just ask a lot of questions. Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. You're good. Sometimes people do that. You'll do that and you'll go and just ask some questions. And it's like one question, where are you from? And it's like the person just talks at you incessantly. Like they just go on and on and on. You're like, okay, I really want to get away. What's my excuse? Like, okay, that's so interesting. Oh, like your grandmother. Yeah, sure. Okay, uh, yeah, whatever. And it just, and it's, I'm doing this because it's like their personality just starts to, starts to fill the room. And there's, there's no space in that room for anybody else. It's like, it's like you're emotionally or verbally crowded and pressed up against the wall by like that person's personality. That's pride. Pride is that when you're so full of yourself, there's no room for anybody else. Now, spiritual pride, there's a horizontal practice to this thing. The Pharisee is off by himself. There's a horizontal thing. There's also a vertical thing. When you are so full of yourself and there's no room for God, please help. I'm already crushing this. I'm fine. I don't have anything to confess and I have no needs. I just thank you that I'm not like so-and-so. Pride is that you're so full of yourself. There's no room for anybody else and there's no room for God. And this is what Jesus is rescuing us from. And he's rescuing us by telling a story, not of the Pharisee, but he's like flipping it and he's going, now listen to the tax collector. Objectively, much less to offer. But once he recognizes he doesn't have anything to offer, it's like he's ready to to receive Listen to what the tax collector does in the very next line. In verse 13, But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I love that line that he beat his chest. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He starts off with that very first expectation, confession. I'm so sorry about. And it's almost like he doesn't get to the rest of this stuff, or at least Jesus doesn't highlight that because because we see he, he dwells on this like, I am so sorry about that he, he's beating his chest, culturally speaking. In the New Testament, we do not see men beat their chest out of grief or despair. Sometimes in the scripture, you see that a woman would would beat her chest, but typically at the death of a relative, a close relative, maybe the death of a husband, the, the now widow would beat her chest in despair, in distress, as to the immense amount of grief that she's being crushed underneath. This is one of the only times that we ever see a man beat his chest out of despair. It's almost like he's grieving over the death of a loved one in the family because, church, I think he is. His own death. Because he is so hyper-aware of the immense crushing guilt that comes with his sin. I'm so sorry about. And I think Jesus wants us to start there. Because if pride 
is being so full of yourself that there's no room for others, there's no room for God. This humility is beginning with the complete emptying of himself, emptying of ourselves. And once we empty ourselves, we're in the best possible position to be filled, to be used by God. No longer does this guy think that he has anything at all to offer God. And so he is actually in the best, most perfect position to be filled and to be used by God. And so Jesus wraps up this story and he says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified or went down from the temple justified before God. He's changed. The other guy is not. For all those, and I love this like tagline that he puts on, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Exalt yourself, be humbled. Humble yourself and be exalted. I love that line from Jesus. Because you know, he wants his listeners and he wants his disciples to be rescued from this isolating kind of pride that fills the room and doesn't leave room for anybody else. Here's the thing, church. Even if you're not sure about this Jesus thing, I mean, even if you don't know about all of those songs that we just sang or the prayers that we offered already today, even if you're not sure that, that Jesus was, who he believed that he was, the Son of God, incarnate God, right here on earth, even if you don't believe Jesus as like the resurrection from the dead kind of Jesus, if you're unsure of the whole divinity, the whole miraculous, the whole supernatural, the whole God part of Jesus, and you look at him as just kind of this wise guy who took things a little too far, even if you don't believe any of that stuff, I think there's so much wisdom here about pride and how to live well and not in isolation. Because what Jesus is doing is putting on that teacher hat and he's going, listen to me. Even if you don't believe the end results of everything, there's still this massive point within this that it's like, if you don't want to live in isolation from your kids, if you don't want to live in isolation at work and not pay a compliment or a, or a job well done to an employee or a boss, if you don't want these wedges to come in there, if you don't want to live in isolation from a husband and a wife and, and resist offering at least a 5% apology initiation, to sort of get things started towards reconciliation. If you want to live in isolation, pride is the best way to go. But if you want to start breaking that down and to live more in community, more doing life together, and less doing life alone, listen to me, even if you don't believe the whole resurrection stuff about Jesus, still following in his shoes is the best way to live your life. You're just going to be connected with your kids, with your family, with your husband, with your wife, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, with your roommates, with your boss, with your employees, with the people that work around with you. It's just a good way to live. And Jesus goes, this is, this is what it looks like. I, I came not to die for you only, but, but also I came actually how to show you how to live. And Jesus, on the night that he's betrayed, arrested, on the night before he knows that he's about to be executed, he gets his disciples around. What does he do? He washes their feet. Remember, this is Jerusalem in the first century. The major mode of transportation was animal. Animal creates a kind of an interesting byproduct in those streets. And so when Jesus, he comes and he gets, takes his jacket off. When you came into the house, of course you'd wash the stuff off from the, the feet. But 
you, Jesus doesn't ask a lowly servant to do it. He takes off his jacket. He goes, no, I'll wash your feet. You don't have to do this, Lord. You're, you're the Messiah. You're the one. No, no, no. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. Go ahead and do this. Jesus, he places himself um, strategically outside a well in John chapter 4, a Samaritan well. Uh, Jewish people, Samaritan people, they, they loathed each other. They Oil and water, they did not get along so much bad blood. But Jesus, as a Jewish rabbi, he goes and he sits next to the well and he waits until noon for a woman to come around. You know what kind of backstory goes into a woman who, who chooses that her only acceptable time to go to a well in the desert is in the middle of the afternoon when it is hottest out and nobody else is around? I mean, you know just from those facts that it's embarrassing for her. But yet she comes up and Jesus says, I need help. Please will you give me a drink? I am in need of something that only you can offer me. You see, Jesus is placing himself in this, in this position where, where he is asking for help. He's admitting. He's serving. He's humbling himself. It even got to the point where one church in the city of Philippi, and Paul writes this letter to the, to the church, and he calls it Philippians, very cleverly named, and he writes out this song. I'm not going to sing it with you because I'm at least that much self-aware. <laughs> Passionate but ungifted vocalist. Uh, and good thing we don't have the tune or melody anyway, but we do have the, the words. And the words of this hymn, this song in Philippians chapter 2, is that Jesus, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is who Jesus was. It's like he identified this pride, and especially this spiritual kind of pride that says, I'm better and I'm not in need of anyone else horizontally or anyone vertically. And he goes, that has to be rooted out. And most of the time, we, we think of pride as like this, this beast to put down. And we look for maybe a silver bullet or a magic potion or something to shrink it down. I heard this uh, a while back and I just loved this image because it wasn't a, a beast to be put down at all, but it was an onion to peel. And I just... <clears throat> It has some potency to it, and you'll pick that up real soon, I'm sure. Part of the object lesson. Uh, that, that the pride in our, in our lives is, is, is not like a magic thing that we can put down, magic potion or silver bullet, but it's like layered off one peel at a time. And every time you'd peel a layer of it off, there'd be another one just beneath it, and it would start to stink that much more. But every time, every time we do that very, very Jesus thing, and we admit we don't have all the answers, or we admit maybe that, that we don't know something, or that we need help with something, or at least, if you're like me, at least I, I'm 5% wrong in here, and this is my small part of owning the conflict that we're experiencing right now. We, we do that work, and we pull back the layers of pride until, Lord willing, there is nothing left. And Jesus, he taught us to do this. One initiation at a time, one apology at a time, one admission at a time, one layer at a time until there's nothing left. And he goes, you want to connect with your wife. You want to connect with your kids. You can impress them through your strength, but you'll connect through your weaknesses in admitting the areas that you fall short and peel the pride away a layer 
at a time. And so an action step, even again, even if you don't believe in Jesus, even if you're not sure about this whole thing, an action step is when you go home today and you get in the car and kind of talk about the morning or maybe insights that you picked up or didn't pick up, and you just kind of share a little bit about what's going on, or maybe you're at home and at lunchtime, or maybe you're out and, and like just the conversation around the table. It's just to take a second and to ask the person that you came here with or the person that was also sitting next to you and just say, listen, I don't want this. I don't want to be that kind of person that has pride keeping me from and causing me to. I don't want any of this stuff. So help me root it out. Which area do you see my pride coming out? As a blog post, Desiring God, um, John Piper uh, that I read a little while ago that I just thought was relevant for this morning, he goes, there's like these five areas that, that pride tends to come out um, most often that, that we can start to see. And so I just want to give you these five as like a way that maybe your pride comes out. And also that if you come across this blog post and you're like, wow, John, you must have totally gotten that from Dirk. Yes. Um, <laughs> Fault finding is the first area of pride that uh, pride filters out all the bad stuff inside of us and filters out the, the filters out the good in other people. So you only see their faults all the time. Fault finding, superficiality, uh, being more concerned with the perception of others in you, more concerned with that than the reality of the condition of your own heart. Or defensiveness. Well, I only did that because you did this, or you're the one who did, or but but yeah, but 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 but. Or the need for attention about bragging for accomplishments, that person that fills the room talking about yourself, never saying no to anyone or anything because you need to be needed is actually a form of pride coming out, neglecting others, not even thinking about other people being so consumed with your own schedule, with your own workload, with your own timelines that you can't even see some needs in other people. Just consider What are the areas of pride? I don't want to live a kind of life like that. Even if you're not a Christian, I think it's helpful because I think it's going to rescue you from this ugly, stinking pride that divides you from God that Jesus hates, divides you from others which Jesus hates. But if you are a Christian, If you do give Jesus the the keys to the driver's seat of your life, this thing is amazing. This thing is revolutionary because this thing changes the entire game because because now you're looking at the world through a cross-shaped lens and in the shadow of his cross. Let me tell you, when, when the guy, when the tax collector, he goes up to the temple and he's offering his individual prayers and he's beating his chest as if there was a death in the family, there was his own because of sin. And he watches the priest take that lamb back behind the curtain and he prays to God. He goes, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We're reading this from the gospel story of Luke. Luke is telling us this story. And Luke is hyper familiar with this word of have mercy. And every time Luke uses this word, and he does a lot, he uses the word aleo, mercy, have mercy on me. Mercy is a free gift. Mercy is there's no price. Mercy is there's nothing that you can do or pay me in in exchange for this thing. It's just a handover. It's a freebie. Jesus tells the story of a parable of the good Samaritan, the guy who got beat up and the people passed by and there's a Samaritan who came and bandaged the guy up and took care of him. And Jesus concludes the story who was the neighbor? And the people listening answer, and they go, the one who had aleo, mercy, the one who gave him the free gift. 
Luke is so familiar with the concept of a free gift of mercy to people. But that's, when he's telling the story, that's not the word that he goes to. Even though it's his go-to word. When the tax collector sees the lamb going in behind the curtain in the priest, he doesn't use the word aleo, he uses the word halaskomai. He uses the word for atonement. He uses the word for sacrifice because he knows because of the weight of his sin, the crushing guilt in his life, that he knows the amount of pride that he still somehow maintains. He knows that a free gift is not enough. There has to be a price that is paid. There has to be a bigger and a better lamb to pay the cost. And John clears it up in chapter 1 when John the Baptist looks over and he looks at Jesus, his cousin, and he says, there, right there, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you know how freeing this is? How absolutely and utterly liberating this is? As people of God, followers of Christ, living in the shadow of the cross, to say, I don't no longer bear the burden of needing to peel back every layer of my own pride, obsessing about it, compulsion about it, and just, just trying to do it by myself, and saying, no, I don't need to, because I'm looking through the world at the lens, through the lens of the cross. And I know I don't have to earn anything. I don't have to offer anything up. In fact, any good thing that I ever might offer is simply just an expression of gratitude. It's a thank you note written back to God and saying, I can't earn a single thing ever at all because you have done it all for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And what you can expect to experience as a follower of that Savior and looking at the world through that lens is eventually the 300-pound gorilla on your back starts to shrink and diminish. And you can offer an apology that much sooner. You can admit you need help that much sooner because you live a grace-filled life. Church, during this last song, if you want that kind of free life, if you want to be liberated from that 300-pound gorilla on your back, we have a prayer team set up in back. They would love to pray with you during this last song. For right now, I invite you to stand up. Let's pray together as a community. A gracious God, we ask for freedom and we ask for grace. God, we ask for liberation from all of those things that bottle us up and hem us in. God, we pray for forgiveness for all the ways that we let pride promise to build us up and make us bigger and better when actually it makes us smaller and meaner and more petty. God, rescue us from it. God, give us grace, give us freedom. God, I pray for somebody who's about to have a difficult afternoon because they know that this message has just cut to the heart. And they know that they've been living a pride-filled life. I pray for those conversations that are about to take place this afternoon, the car ride on the way home or over lunch. I pray for honesty and I pray for grace. I pray for truth. I pray for grace and love. Jesus, in all of this, we turn over to you, our Savior, in whose name we all said, amen.